Hey. <laughs> All right, if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab that right now. We're going to be in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3 is where we're heading. Go ahead and open on up there. As you turn there, um, I introduced myself at the beginning of the week and I told you um, two of the, the most important things that are kind of really define my life. Um, but it's really two of the three things. See, I talked about my family and I, I talked about the fact that I'm a pastor and that I serve at this church and love this church and preach the word of God and disciple people. But here's the most important thing um, there is to say about me. The, oh, goodness. <laughs> We'll get there. It's okay. It's okay. We love you. And it's okay. It's getting worse. This is the end, everyone. That, that was, it was like my walk-up music in baseball, right? Um, that was great. Um, all right, so, so here's what happens. I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, I think that's true for a lot of people in this room. I don't assume that's true for everyone, but... But when I say Christian home, that, that means it's something a little different than it means for a lot of people. Um, I grew up in a home where both my parents love Jesus. And, and my parents are, 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 have been married since 1983. They, they love each other dearly and, and are married to this day. And yet here's the odd thing that went on in our home. Um, my parents, when they got married, went to different churches. And all throughout their 35 plus years of marriage, they never started going to each other's churches. And so my dad is this Irish Roman Catholic man who goes to mass every single Sunday. And that's where, that's where he went to church for all of my childhood and to this day. And my mom is this Dutch Presbyterian lady and she goes to her Presbyterian church. And so that was the church that I grew up going to when I was with my mom. And so again, married couple and as children, every morning on Sunday, the big choice for us wasn't will we go to church, that was assumed. The question for me as a kid was which church will you go to? And so here was my calculus as a young kid. When my beloved and victorious San Francisco 49ers were playing the early 9 a.m. kickoff, I would go to my dad's church because they met a little earlier. So I would go to church with him and then I would get to get home in time for the first quarter. But then when my Niners were playing the afternoon game, I would go to my mom's church and that's kind of how I rolled up until middle school. And then in middle school, I made a profound theological decision. And that profound theological decision was that I was a Presbyterian. And I want to let you know why I was a Presbyterian. It wasn't because I knew anything about what it meant to be a Presbyterian. It's because the Presbyterian church my mom went to for the middle school group had donuts and a ping pong table, and I thought that was cool. All right? And so again, growing up for me, the decision was never, are you going to go to church? The decision was always, which church will you go to? And yet something happened for me when I was in middle school. I was in eighth grade. It was, in fact, the summer before I was going into eighth grade. And I was on a retreat. It wasn't here at Hume Lake. It was at a different kind of place. But we're on this retreat. And remember, I'd gone to church my whole life. I knew all the Bible verses. I knew all the songs. I knew all the things. I knew what you're supposed to wear, khakis, polo shirt. I had it all down, okay? I was set. I knew all the church things. But I'll never forget what happened that night. So there was a preacher who was preaching. And he was preaching on a text out of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And it was all about laying down your life for Jesus and having this transformed life. At the very end of his message, he asked a question that I'll never forget. He said, does anyone here want to begin that journey of having a transformed life? 
And I remember hearing that question and knowing that I had grown up in church. I knew all the Bible answers. I probably knew the Bible better than anyone else who was there. And yet in that moment, something wild happened in my heart. It was like God pointed at me and said, that's you. I'm in eighth grade. Since I was born, I was in church. And yet in that moment, God said, you know what? The time has passed for you to ask the question, which church will you go to? And the time has come for you to ask the question, what will you do with my son, Jesus? Everything changed for me that night. See, I'd gone to church and I knew all the Bible answers and I knew all the behaviors and I knew all the ways I was supposed to live. I knew all the things church folk were supposed to know. But up until that point, I knew things about church, but I did not know this man, Jesus. And something changed that summer. It's not that I became perfect. It's not that everything fell into place. It's that I stopped following church. I stopped following the idea of being a good person. And I started following after this Jesus. And let me tell you something. It has been the single greatest and most significant decision that I've ever made in my entire life. In that moment, I went from being someone who attended church to being someone who followed and trusted Jesus. And here's why I share that story with you tonight as we go into Jonah chapter 3. Because I believe that the Holy Spirit of God is going to have that same invitation and response for some of you tonight. Tonight, I want to invite some of you who've grown up in church. You know all sorts of things about the Bible. You know all sorts of things about church. You know all the songs. You know all the things you're supposed to know. But you do not follow Jesus. You do not trust Jesus. You have not trusted him with your life and your sin and your salvation. And tonight's your night. And then there are others of you. You didn't grow up in church. You have a different story than me. And yet some hear how you ended up here this weekend. And I want you to know that's not random. That's not on accident. There is a God who has known you before you even knew yourself, who knew that you were going to come here this weekend. And you were going to hear this invitation tonight and respond. I want to be clear from the front that tonight there is an invitation. And it demands a response from every person in this room. It demands a response on what you will do. Not with church, not with Christianity as a religious idea or system, but with a person. And that person has a name. And that name is Jesus. I want to show you how we get there tonight. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1. We'll start here. It says this, that the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, came to Jonah a second time. So you'll remember our whole story begins not with Jonah, but with the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh. This I am who I am, who says, this is who I am. Take me or leave me. But you cannot make up someone else to stand in my place. And this word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And here's just what I want to remark right now. Isn't it remarkable that God hasn't just given up on Jonah at this point? Like Jonah's not getting it. He's going his own direction. He's doing his own thing. Remember what the original command was. Go to the great city of Nineveh and call out against it for its wickedness has come up before me. Jonah goes his own direction. You think at some point God would be like, uh, there's millions if not billions of people who are alive. I'll pick someone else. But Yahweh is the kind of God who does not pick someone else. And you know why? Because until your very last breath, Yahweh is not done with you. He's not done with you. He's not over you. He's not sick of you. He's not tired of you. He's not running out of patience with your sin. He is slow to anger. He is filled with compassion. He sees you. He knows you. He wants you. And he will never give up on you. You may have given up on God. The God of the universe has not given up on you. It begins with the word of the Lord coming to Jonah a second time. Because we believe in the God of second chances. And you're like, Brian, I'm on my 40th chance. I believe in the God of 41st chances. 
That's what I believe in, a God who will never fail, never give up, never stop pursuing rebels like you and me and everyone in this story. It says in verse two, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I give you. It's almost word for word what we see in the very beginning of the book. In other words, hey, Jonah, remember this whole rigmarole we just went through? Storms, sailors, fish, you were inside three days, covered in vomit, that whole bit. Jonah's like, yeah, yeah. God's like, I'm still into the whole Nineveh thing. I'm still thinking about Nineveh. Isn't there something awesome that God is still thinking about Nineveh? This whole story has brought us into all sorts of things that have nothing to do with Nineveh, this capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And yet God's heart is still set on the people of Nineveh. But let me ask you a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer out loud. Do you think at this moment the people of Nineveh are thinking about God? Do you think they're thinking about the Lord? The answer is, of course not. They're doing their own thing, going their own direction, walking in their own sin and wickedness and violence. They're doing their own deal. These people are not thinking about God in this moment. But here's the crazy thing. God's thinking about them. Like, do you know that the good news of the gospel, the central message of the Christian faith, is that before you wanted anything to do with God, God wanted everything to do with you. That Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 tells us that when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like, in other words, when you were at your darkest, God looked at you and said, I want that man. I want that woman. I would do anything to have that man or that woman in my family, up to and including my son's life on the cross. Like, that's the story of the gospel. The story of the gospel is not that someday you decided that you were going to trust in God. It's that when you were running as far as you could away from God, God said, that's the woman I want. That's the man I want. God was thinking about you long before you were thinking about him. And again, tonight, I just want you to know that if anyone responds to this gospel invitation, it's not because it was your grand idea or mine. It's because before you were even born, when you were in your mother's womb, God knit you together and said, I love you, I see you, I created you. You may have been an accident to someone else. You are no accident to God. You are made on purpose and with a purpose. And this is the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah is God going, I'm still directing you to Nineveh because that's where my heart is. In verse three, it says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Like in other words, Jonah does the thing he should have done in the first place. Jonah obeys the word of the Lord because the right response to God when he speaks is to obey all the way and right away. Like most parents have something like this in their home, but with our kids, we have this. We want you to obey all the way and right away. Like when my kids are hanging out, maybe they're watching TV and then their mom, my wife walks in the door. I say to them, hey, go give mom a hug. And if they're watching some television show, they're watching Coco Melon or Blippi on the TV, and they're just like dialed into this show, and they don't listen to me, that's a problem. Because delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. If they're coloring, and I'm like, hey, I need you to put on your shoes, and they're like, yeah, yeah, but I'm coloring right now. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And child of God, Christian, follower of Jesus who's hearing me right now, if the Lord our God in heaven, if Yahweh has convicted you of anything this weekend, I need you to know the same is true for you. That delayed obedience is disobedience. That if God is calling you to do something when you leave camp, when you go home, when you go back to church, if he's calling you to get baptized, if he's calling you to join a small group, if he's calling you to read the Bible, if he's calling you to repent of sin or break it off with a girl or give up your phone because you can't handle the temptation anymore, delayed obedience is disobedience. And the whole story of Jonah lays out what it looks like when we're like, God, I'll obey you some other time. So child of God, don't do it. 
Like when you go home tomorrow, whatever the Lord, the God of the universe has put on your heart, do it all the way and right away. And then let me just speak to those of you who aren't Christians yet. Maybe you're just kind of here and you're checking it out, but maybe this thought has occurred to you somewhere along the way. I would love to kind of do the whole Jesus thing and Christian thing. I just want to get through high school and college first because I want to do the things kids do in high school and college. I want to do the party scene and the girl scene or the guy scene or the drug scene or the alcohol scene. I want to do that. I want to have the best time because everyone tells me high school is the best four years of my life. And if it's not that, it's college. That's the best four years of your life. Let me say two things to you. Number one, if you have been convinced that you are living in the best four years of your life, you have a future of decades of misery ahead of you, right? Like, there's no best four years of your life. Do you know the only year of your life is this one, the one the Lord has made, that you wake up and you rejoice and you're glad in it? There's no best four years of your life. And then furthermore, if you think the idea is I'll push off following and being faithful to God so that I can enjoy my sin for a little bit and then later on go back to God, I'm telling you, the one who will suffer most from that decision is you is you. Like when you know that God is calling you, when you know that God is wooing you to himself, when you know that God is saying, forsake your sin and turn to my son Jesus, the best thing to do is obey and respond all the way and right away. That's why 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the time of God's salvation. There's no reason to wait. Let me tell you, I accepted Jesus. I came to follow Jesus and trust him when I was in eighth grade. Do you know that high school is infinitely better than in the midst of all the pressure and all of the peer pressure and all of the stuff that gets thrown at you, all the things that happen in high school? It was infinitely better because I knew I was already accepted by God. Can I tell you college was infinitely better because I knew Jesus? College is this confusing time where you're not sure what your life is all about, but I knew what my life was all about. I didn't know where I'd end up. I just knew following Jesus was always going to be part of the picture. Can I tell you that graduating college and meeting a woman who loved Jesus and I loved Jesus was something that just blessed me enormously? There was no part of me that ever looked back at my life and wished I had waited or delayed in following Jesus. Every part of me is so deeply grateful that I came to know Jesus when I did. And if today you know Jesus is calling you, do not delay because today is the day of God's salvation. It goes on this way in verse 3. It says, now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. And Jonah began by going through the, the, a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's the sermon, okay? That's it. In the English Bible I just read it out of, it's eight words. In the Hebrew language of the original, it's five words. It would be like tonight if I walked out on stage and said, good evening, everyone, you're all doomed. Good night. Right? Like, that's his sermon, and yet this crazy thing happens. We're going to watch people respond to that. And we're going to watch people respond, not because his sermon was so clever, not because his sermon was so insightful, or he told some story and everyone's like, that's beautiful. He just says what God told him to say. And I just believe that's the power of salvation, that God's word does not return void. Noah preaches the sermon, people respond. But I don't want you to blow past the sermon he's preaching. Like, let me read it again to you, these eight words in English. 40 more days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. What he's announcing to the people of Nineveh is a serious subject that they need to think about, that God's judgment is coming upon them for their sin, their wickedness, and their rebellion. What he is proclaiming to the people of Nineveh, don't miss this, is that there is not a single sin or a single moment in their life 
where God does not see it and where God is not offended because he is a holy God offended by that wickedness and where God's anger is not stirred up toward that. And that's true for the people of Nineveh. But then we need to talk about this tonight. That's true for everyone in this room. I need you to understand what the scriptures promise us is that every single human being who has ever lived, including you and me and your sister and your brother and your parents and your great-grandparents, every single human being who has ever lived or will ever live, one day will stand judgment before God. That judgment is coming for our sin. And there will come a day where you and me and all of us will stand before the judge of the universe and we won't have our friends by our side and we won't have our excuses by our side and we won't have our pretense of how strong we are by our side. We'll stand in front of that God. And here's the reality we have to talk about. The reality we have to talk about is that sin will be punished. Now listen to me. I know that talking about the punishment that exists for sin is not a fun, enjoyable thing to talk about. I get that it would actually be easier for me to stand up here and not talk about the reality of sin and judgment and hell and eternity and just kind of move past it as if it doesn't exist. But if I did so, I would be a terrible pastor. I would be a terrible preacher in your life. It's like this. I've got a one-year-old son I described. He's almost two. And uh, I don't know if you know this about toddlers, but toddlers are basically heat-seeking missiles for anything that will destroy them. They, like, they wake up in the morning and they're like, how can I end everything today? Right? That's, what they, that's what they do. They're like, hey, look at that electrical socket. What if I put a spoon in it? You know, they're like, hey, there's a street with cars. What if I just run and leap into it? They're walking on the couch and they're like, hmm, I could fall off onto the carpet, the padded place, or onto the hardwood floor. I'll take the hardwood, right? Like, that's what they do. Like little children are just like heat-seeking missiles to that which will destroy them. And here's what everyone in this room knows. You're not a parent, but here's what you know. I would be a terrible father if I was like, well, Noah, you do you, bud. You know, like if he's like running into the street, I'm like, well, I don't want to judge him. I don't want him to think I'm like narrow-minded. So I'll just let him play with knives, right? Like I'm not going to do that. Why? Because... Because my goal is not to like be his buddy. My, my goal is to tell him about reality because there is real danger and there is something to warn him about. And listen, in the same way, there, I could just stand up here and be like, yeah, if you don't accept Jesus, yeah, you do you. I don't want to judge you. I'm not narrow-minded. But here's what I know. Someday you'll stand in judgment before God. And I would be a terrible pastor if I don't tell you what happens. See, for the people who know and trust Jesus, not the perfect people, the people who know and trust Jesus, their sin has been forgiven by him. They will be welcomed into the master's joy. They will be welcomed into an eternal heaven. But for those who reject Jesus and want nothing to do with Jesus and refuse to receive the forgiveness of sins that he offered us on the cross, what awaits us is an eternity in a place the Bible describes as hell. That's what the Bible describes it as. That hell is this eternal separation and eternal punishment from God for our sins and that all of us are deserving of it. And if we continue to go, forget you, God, I'm going my own way, my own direction, doing my own thing, I'm going my own way, I don't want you, God, eventually God will say your will be done and you will enter into a Christless eternity without God. Now, again, I know this is so heavy and so difficult to wrestle with, and actually for some people, so offensive. I remember a couple years ago, I was preaching at my church, um, and I brought up this subject of hell, and I'll never forget this afterwards. This guy walks up to me. I'm standing outside, just kind of greeting people on the way out, and he comes up to me all angry. And I'll never forget, because he kind of gets up, and he starts to put his finger in my chest, and you know that guy's mad. Here's what he says. He says, I'm a good person. 
I'm a good person. I do good things. I'm not a bad person. I don't do bad things. Are you telling me? Are you telling me if I don't accept Jesus that I'm going to hell? Now, in moments like this, there are a lot of ways you can respond. You can get angry back. You can walk away and run away. You can do a lot of things in that moment. But here's what I hope you'll always do in a moment where someone confronts you like that. The first thing is this. And I said this to him. I said, I want to be clear on something. I'm not telling you if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to hell. God is telling you that. This isn't like a personal opinion of mine. This isn't something I like bring out at youth camps to make you feel guilty so you'll respond. This is a God thing. It's not some personal debate between me and this guy about whether hell exists or not. We all have our opinions and they are irrelevant compared to what the word of God has to actually say. Right, like that's the truth. But, but then here's the second piece and this is where the discussion really got with this guy. I said, so you think you should go to heaven? He goes, absolutely. I said, well, why don't you put your faith in Jesus? And he goes, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I'm not a Jesus. That's not my thing. He goes, I'm not judging. I'm not mad at you for Jesus. It's just not my thing. I don't want to be about Jesus. And here's what I asked him. I said, well, the way I understand heaven is that at the center of it is a lamb who is seated upon a throne. So heaven seems to be completely centered around Jesus. So here's my question for you. Why would you want to go to a heaven where everything is about Jesus when you want nothing of him in this life? Why would you want that? So see, here's what a lot of you think. A lot of you think the choice is between heaven and hell. And for you, heaven seems like the nice place where you bounce on a cloud and get ice cream, and hell is the bad place where it's like flames and bad, and you're like, mm, I guess on balance I'd like heaven. But that's not actually the choice. Can I say that again? The choice for you is not between heaven and hell. The choice is much more simple. Do you want God or not? That's the decision for you. And if you want God, there is an eternal heaven waiting for you where you will be in his presence forevermore, worshiping, ruling, and reigning with the saints in a resurrected world forevermore. And if you do not want God, God will honor and respect that, and he will allow you to go into an eternity where you do not have him. The question is not between heaven and hell. It's do you want God or not? Like, I want you to hear me tonight. Heaven's not a, or hell's not a joke. Hell's not something I make up. Hell's not some silly thing out there that's some sort of old-fashioned relic of the past. Hell is real. Hell is forever. But then here's the most important thing I need you to hear me tonight. Every eye on me right now. Hell is not a place any human being has to go. There is no human being in this world who has to go to hell. It is not a place you have to end up. No one is forced to go there. You will not have to go there unless you absolutely refuse to turn to God. See, here's how it continues in verse 5. It says, the Ninevites believed God. And a fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from the throne and took off his royal robes and covered him in sackcloth and sat down in the dust. So here's what happens in this moment. They're aware that judgment is coming, that God's wrath is coming upon them unless they turn, unless they change. And so here's what they do. They respond to the message, and it says in this moment that they hear the message and they respond. They believed God. Notice it doesn't say they believe Jonah. They believe God. Like your goal tonight, my invitation tonight is not to believe Brian Howard. Brian Howard means nothing. No one will remember my name. My name will be lost to the ashes of history. Jesus' name will remain forever. And what we're called to do is believe God. And it says that a fast was proclaimed from the greatest to least. And then here's what I want you to notice. Look back in the text in verse 5 and 6. Twice it mentions this kind of silly thing that you might not understand. It says that they put on sackcloth. You're like, sackcloth? What in the world is sackcloth? I love when you ask questions that are in my notes. 
So here's what I got for you. Here is an artist rendering what sackcloth would look like. It is literally like a sack that you would have a bunch of potatoes in and they make it into cloth and you go wear it. And it says from the greatest to the least, to the king, to the peasant, everyone puts on sackcloth. Sackcloth is this weird little thing found through all throughout the Bible. You'll see it over and over if you look closely. You might ask yourself, like, what's sackcloth all about? Why put on sackcloth? Here's why, and if you're writing notes, you can write this down. Sackcloth is two things. You put on sackcloth because it makes you uncomfortable, and you put on sackcloth because it is a show in public. It's uncomfortable, and it's in public. Like, it's uncomfortable. When you wear a sack on yourself, it is not like cozy. It's not like, ooh, that's nice. It's like, oh, this is uncomfortable. This is difficult. And that it is never something that you do just inside your home. People would put on sackcloth and sit out in public just like this artist's rendering. And here's why it matters. Sackcloth is uncomfortable and it's public because sackcloth is an image that is meant to point us to a different kind of Bible word. And the Bible word that sackcloth is meant to point us toward is this beautiful, epic word called repentance. Repentance. Repentance is this Bible word. In the New Testament Greek, it's the word metanoia. It's the idea that you are going in one direction, you plant your foot in the ground, you turn, and you go a different direction. Metanoia, that Greek word, literally means a change of mind. So what does this have to do with sackcloth? Repentance requires two things. Number one, it's going to require you to be uncomfortable. And number two, it's always going to be public. What do I mean by uncomfortable? When you are called to repent of your sin, it is always a moment that exposes you as a sinner, one who is far from God, one who has fallen short of God's glory. That's what it makes you. It makes you uncomfortable. And I need you to know if you're going to be serious about following God, it is sometimes going to make you uncomfortable. Like tonight, I'm going to give a gospel invitation. I'm going to ask some of you to stand to your feet and declare that today's my spiritual birthday. Today's the day I'm putting my faith in Jesus. And you know what's going to happen for some of you? You're going to be nervous to stand because you've been part of your church your whole life just like I was. And everyone just assumes you're a Christian. They assume you're saved. And it might be uncomfy to stand up because people are going to look at you and go like, that's weird. But you know what? True repentance requires you to step into the uncomfortable because true repentance requires you to humble yourself. You can't be saved if you won't humble yourself. So number one, sackcloth is uncomfortable. Number two, it's public. Like here's what I need you to know about repentance. Repentance isn't like in the quietness of my heart, I repent and I never tell anyone and no one ever knows that I recognize that I'm a sinner and I need a savior. No, it's gotta be public. It's gotta be for the world to see. Because if you are ashamed to talk about Jesus, ashamed to say I'm for Jesus, if you are ashamed of the name of Jesus, Jesus does not receive that. This has got to be a public thing where you are willing to stand in a room like this, in a space like this, in a people like this, and say, I'm a sinner, a great sinner, but I have a great savior whose name is Jesus Christ and he came to rescue me. That's what repentance is. To repent is to change. Like sometimes people think repentance means you just feel bad. And all of us know how to feel bad. Like I could be like your, your, your travel advisor for a guilt trip tonight. I could be like, you know how you're a sinner? You're like, yeah, I'm like, feel terrible. You're like, I do. You know, like, but, but you know what that changes? Nothing. Actually, it might change stuff for like a day or two. That was me at camps growing up. I'd always feel bad. Emotion really got me stirred up. I was like, I'm never going to do bad. I'm not going to swear again. I'm not going to look at porn again. I'm not going to lie to my parents again. Never again. But emotion doesn't change things. Repentance changes things. Because repentance isn't something you feel. It is an action you do. 
It is a change of your mind. It's a change of the way you think. You no longer see sin the same way. You no longer see the world the same way. You no longer see God the same way because you've been changed. So the things you used to think were acceptable or cool or interesting are no longer that anymore. The TV shows you used to watch and it was no big deal to you how foul and ridiculous and gross the content is suddenly doesn't feel right to you anymore. You lying to your parents used to be an acceptable tool because that was just kind of the way you got through in life. But when you repent, you no longer think that's an okay way to function and live. You looking at pornography used to be cool because that's just kind of what everyone does. And so it's no big deal and it's not really hurting anyone. But when you repent, you recognize it is hurting an entire industry of people and it is hurting you, right? When you repent, it's for you to go, you know what? I'm no longer going to be involved with the substances I've been involved with. And that doesn't just mean like, I guess I'll stop, but I'll keep the stash. You know, it's just got to keep it. No, you throw it away. You burn it. You throw it in the trash. You give it away. Repentance is not something you feel. It is an action you do. What I want to invite you tonight is to put on sackcloth, to sit in ashes, to have this thing where it's uncomfortable and not, doesn't feel good and it's kind of public. And at the same time, that's the only way we come before God. Because those who humble themselves before the Lord, those are the ones who will be exalted. Verse seven says this, this proclamation he issued, now this is the king. This is the proclamation the king issued to Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals or herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and the animals be covered in sackcloth and let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. So the, sin makes it, the king makes a declaration to the entire city and goes, listen, everyone, we got to take this serious. We cannot play around with this. If judgment is coming, we need to change our ways. And so what does he tell them? No one is to eat. No one is to drink. Put on sackcloth. No one is supposed to do anything. Just sit where you're at right now and call upon the name of our Lord. And here's what occurs to me. And maybe we know this better now than most people in human history. When you demand that every single person in society stop what they're doing, stop what they're working, stop their business, stop everything, there is enormous cost that comes with that, right? Like that's what we've all learned in the last couple of years. And the king declares, stop, stay at home, put on sackcloth, don't do anything, stop what you're doing right now. And there's an enormous cost that comes with that. It's just so easy to just be like, oh, I guess everyone stopped for a little bit. It's like the bakers stopped baking bread and the butchers stopped making meat and the people who built homes stopped building homes. Everyone just stopped. And there was an enormous price that was paid. And here's why this matters for us. Because you need to understand when it comes to our sin, our rebellion, and our wickedness before God, there is always a price that will be paid. There always is. You need to understand that your sin, your wickedness, your rebellion against Yahweh, the holy God of the universe, comes with a price. But the greatest danger, and don't miss this tonight, is that you would think that it is your job to pay the price for your sin. And you couldn't be further from the truth. I want you to know the central message of the Christian faith is not, you're a sinner, so clean up your act and do better for God. The central message of the Christian faith is you are a sinner and you have no hope of cleaning up your act. But Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom all of us are the worst and he rescues and redeems us at our worst. This is the central story of the Christian faith. And how is the price paid for your sins and for mine? The answer is not by your good deeds. It's not you giving some money to church or doing nice things for the poor. All of those are good things, but it is not what saves you. 
What saves you is told clearly to us in 1 Peter. We're going to put this up on the screen. It says this. It says, he himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, we have been healed. You want to know what the price is for your salvation? The price for your salvation is someone who was spotless, who was slaughtered, and who was a substitute. That the price for your salvation is a sacrifice, and that sacrifice must be someone who is spotless, who is slaughtered, and who stands in as your substitute. And this verse tells us exactly who that is. Who's the spotless one? It's the first word. He, Jesus, Yahweh incarnate, the word become flesh, the man who stands among us, who is God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, the spotless one. He was perfect. He was righteous. In every way you have been tempted, he was tempted as well, and yet he did not sin. He did not fail. The story of Jesus is the story of the sacrifice of the perfect one. If you are imperfect, you need someone who is perfect to rescue you. You need someone who is spotless. And Jesus, the scriptures tell us, is the spotless lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the spotless one. Number two, you need a sacrifice that is slaughtered. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death and that the requirement for your sin and for mine is death, it is blood. And instead of killing you, instead of judging you, the whole story of the cross of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ is slaughtered for us. Like on that night he was betrayed, Jesus is handed over to the authorities and he's put on a sham of a trial in the middle of the night. And after that trial, they decide to put him to death. The story goes like this. Jesus is stripped of all of his clothes and they take a crown made of thorns from a rose bush and they push it into his head until blood runs down. That same Jesus is beaten. He's mocked. He's spit upon. It says they had him flogged with a whip that's filled with stones and glass and parts of bone that would rip apart the flesh and break bones. Some people never even survived a scourging like that. And then that same Jesus who was mocked and spit upon and laughed at and ridiculed, that same Jesus who's been up all night suffering and trying to pray on behalf of his people is made to march with his cross all the way through Jerusalem, outside the gates, up to a hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. They laid his cross on the ground and these Roman soldiers put Jesus on that cross. They then took railroad spikes and drove it through this part of the wrist, one of the most sensitive places on the human body, to nail him to the cross in his hands and in his feet. And then they hoisted him up on the cross. And Jesus hangs there. And if in your mind you have Jesus kind of clothed for modesty, get that out of your mind. He is clothed completely naked, totally ashamed, exposed for the world, suffering in his shame and in his pain. And in that time, he does not die from loss of blood. He does not die because it's just too hard. Ultimately, when you died on the cross, you died from asphyxiation. Fluid would start to fill up his lungs, and to get a breath, he would have to push up on the nails and breathe in and breathe out. And Jesus will ultimately have his lungs filled with fluid, and one last time, he cries out. As he cries to heaven, he says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And in his last breath, he cries out the Greek word, tetelestai. He says, it is finished. It's done. See, Jesus didn't just die on the cross. Some of us have sanitized the test of Jesus to turn it into like, yeah, he died, but he wrote, okay. He was slaughtered for your sins and for your salvation, because here's what you needed to pay for your sins. You needed a spotless one, you needed one who's slaughtered, but here's the most important thing of all, you needed a substitute. 
The idea isn't that Jesus just kind of suffered on the cross and that was a bummer, but through that, Jesus forgives. No, no, no. What it says here is so clear. Can we put that first Peter verse back on the verse? It, it says this, that he bore our sins, like your sins and mine. Where? In his body on the cross. So that we may not die to sins and live for righteousness. And it says, by his wounds, you've been healed. And so how is it that Jesus getting slaughtered 2,000 years ago heals you? Here's the answer. God takes your sin, puts it upon Jesus. And Jesus becomes the target of God's wrath. And he drinks the cup of God's wrath dry. So that the condemnation and the wrath and the anger of God that was to be poured about, out upon you is instead poured out upon Jesus. And Jesus, when he takes that all in, cries out, it is finished. And you know what that declares over your life? There's no more punishment for you. There's no more. The price has been paid. The payment has been accepted. There is no more wrath and anger of God left for you. Let me be so clear with someone in this room. You are a great sinner, but your great Savior has absorbed the wrath of God. There's none left for you. That's why Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's done. It's finished. And the silliest thing you would do is to live the rest of your life trying to pay off a debt that's already been paid. It's like this. So um, the night I got married um, in Westlake Village, uh, we did a wonderful, wonderful wedding. And then um, we stayed at a hotel that night in town. The next morning, we got in a car and we headed down to the airport because we were going to our, our honeymoon in Maui. And we were going to spend eight days there. We're so excited for that. We get to the airport super early because I'm like, I get to the airport, get on the plane guy. But my wife's like, let's get there six weeks early type person. And, and she would tell you that because it's just like, ah, oh, we're there. So we're there like super early. And, and we're here at the airport. And we decide we're going to go into this little restaurant. We're going to get food. And, and so we get up to the restaurant. Here's what you need to know about newly married people or newly engaged people is they tend to drop it in the conversation all the time. So I did not ask for a table for two. I asked for a table for myself and my wife, right? I was like, my wife and I would like a table and bring us over. My wife and I would like a Diet Coke each, please. My wife and I would like that. I just kept saying it. Everyone's like, what? It's like, we were just married and we're going on our honeymoon, myself and my wife, because it's a new word and it's kind of fun to use for me. And so I'm saying this so often and I'm being kind of obnoxious, but you know, I just got married, so whatever, right? And so here's what happens. We start to realize, okay, it's time for us to head over to the gate. And we ask for the check, please. And they come over and they're like, hey, uh, we can't bring you your check. I was like, uh, I need my check because I got to go. And they're like, we can't bring you your check because someone in the restaurant overheard that you just got married and they paid for your meal. Yeah, how cool is that? They paid for my meal. I was like, oh my gosh, this is so great. They paid for my meal, but it was actually kind of a weird moment. Because I was like, so what do I do? They're like, you can just leave. I was like, just like, leave? And they're like, yeah, you, you leave. I'm like, I don't have to pay? They're like, no, no, it's already been paid for. You can leave. And like in that moment, the silliest thing for me would be to pull out my wallet and be like, no, 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 I insist. Like I could have handed over my card and they would have gone, I don't know what to do with this. It's already been paid. And that's the story of the gospel. It's already been paid. There's nothing more for you to do or pay or accomplish. The whole story of Jesus is the story of him doing 100% of the work for your salvation and you doing zero. Do you know that the only thing you contribute to your salvation is your sin? And what Jesus contributes is his salvation? It's this gift exchange. He's like, I'll take your sin, I'll give you my salvation. And he feels great about that. And you go, that's not fair. It's not meant to be fair, it's meant to be grace. It's meant to be mercy over your life. So hear me on this, the bill has been paid. Your sin has been paid for. And listen to me, Jesus got beat up on the cross real bad, right? He got completely pulverized on the cross so that you don't have to keep beating yourself up over your sin. So you don't have to keep reliving how awful and terrible you are and beating your chest every time you sin. You just receive that forgiveness. 
Jesus hung in shame, naked and embarrassed on the cross so that you don't have to live in shame over your sin anymore. It has been lifted from you by the power of the cross. Jesus got cut off from the Father. Do you know that on the cross, he cries out to his Father, who he always called Father, but instead he said, my God, my God. And they asked the question, why have you forsaken me? Do you know that on the cross, Jesus didn't feel forsaken by the Father? He was forsaken by the Father. He was cut off from holy communion with God the Father for the first time. He was cut off for our sake, alienated from the Father so that you will never have to be so that your sin will never make you far from God, you are always in the presence of God. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And listen, that same Jesus got up from the grave on the third day, resurrected to show that the check he put in for your salvation cashed, payment accepted, mission accomplished, sacrifice received on your behalf for your sins and for your salvation. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's for you. That's what Jesus has done on your behalf. The answer is, how do we pay for our sin? We don't. Jesus already has. Sin is costly, and yet Jesus Christ is the one who rescues us. And here's what it says in verse 9. The king is speaking still. He says, who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. The king asks a really fair question. He's like, listen, guys. We gotta repent, we gotta wear sackcloth, we gotta wear ashes, we gotta fast, we gotta call on God's name because maybe, who knows, who knows, possibly, he'll relent, show compassion to us and not judge us like he said he's going to. I love that question. Again, look down at your Bible, that question, what is it? Who knows? And can I tell you the coolest thing in the universe tonight? We know. We know exactly what God will do when we call on his name. It's not a question of who knows. It's not a question of we'll see what God does. We know exactly what will happen when we call on the name of Yahweh, when we call upon the name of the Lord. We know exactly what's going to happen because the Bible tells us. We don't have to be left to mystery. We don't have to wonder. We know exactly what happens when we call upon the name of the Lord because the scriptures tells us there is a sentence that you will find over and over and over again in the Bible. And here's the sentence. It's part of our theme verse this weekend. Romans chapter 10, verse 13, right up here on the screen. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You want to know what the gospel invitation is tonight? It's this invitation. Everyone. It says Everyone. See, some of you think God would never accept you, God would never want you because you didn't grow up in a Christian home or you've sinned too much or some of you have mocked and belittled Christians and so why would God ever want you? You've called yourself an atheist, you've belittled God, you've done everything in your life to want nothing to do with him and here's the wonderful news, that word everyone, I've studied in the Greek and it means everyone, you, me, any person, the stunning invitation of the gospel is not available for some select group of people. It's available for the worst of sinners, the furthest of backsliders, the people who are furthest away from God. It is available to everyone. It says everyone who calls, who calls out. You know why we call people? You know why we call for help? Because at some point we recognize we can't do it on our own. That we're actually in need. Like you're usually like doing your homework at home, right? You're doing it, you're doing it. And then you come to a place where you're kind of stuck or you're not sure what to do and you call someone up. Why? You don't just call them up to chat. You call them up because you're stuck. And you can't figure it out on your own. And you call on their name because you need help. And here's what we do. It says everyone who calls out to God, 
Everyone who recognizes their need for a savior. Everyone who says, I am a great sinner and I am in need of a great savior. That's the type of person that God will rescue. Can I put it to you this way tonight? There is only one type of person that God will not rescue. There is only one type of person that God will not save. And some of you think it's the type of person who sinned too much or sinned in the really bad ways, sinned sexually. Or some of you think God can never save you because of what you brought up to camp or what you've done at camp. No, 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 that's not the case. There is only one type of person God will not save. And it is the person who thinks they do not need saving. That's it. The person who says, I don't need God. I don't need his help. I don't need his salvation. I don't need his forgiveness. I don't need his remedy. I don't need his rescue. That person, God will say, okay, your will be done and send you on your way. It says everyone who calls, who cries out, who says, I need him. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord That word Lord we've looked at in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It is I am who I am, the God who reveals himself. And that's true in the New Testament that the Lord is this reference to who Yahweh is. And specifically, it is the incarnation of Yahweh in Jesus Christ. But then this word in the New Testament is also another word. It has another layer added on top of it. The word for Lord there is not the word God. It is the word in Greek kurios. And kurios is a word in the Greek that means master. It means king. It means the one who is in charge of everything. When we call upon the name of Jesus, it's not just like, God, would you rescue me from my sins, but then I'm going to go back to my old life. No, no, no. When we call upon the name of the Lord, it is us recognizing that Jesus is Lord. He's in charge now. He calls the shots. He tells you what's right and wrong. He tells you what your life is about. He tells you what you do. He tells you what you don't do. He is in charge. And the reason we call upon the name of the Lord and say you're in charge is because he already is. Well, let me put it to you this way. From time to time, I hear someone say, well, when I was in eighth grade, I made Jesus the Lord of my life. Or sometimes there's an invitation for the gospel where it's like, tonight I want to invite you to make Jesus the Lord of your life. Can I tell you something tonight? You don't make Jesus the Lord of anything. He already is the Lord of everything. He's in charge. He is sovereign. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He holds all things in this universe together by his powerful word. And what I do is I don't make him the Lord of something. I acknowledge it. I confess it. I go, you're in charge, God, and I'm not. You call the shots, and I don't. You define right and wrong. I don't. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. It is to recognize that I need a great Savior, and it is to confess that he is a great guide, Lord, King, and Master to my life. My life is forfeit. It's not my own anymore. And it says this, everyone, 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 everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, and then these three words, you can take it to the bank, will be saved. Not that you might be saved or you could be saved or you should be saved. Not that you'll be saved if you keep doing good things and don't do bad things and don't lose the passion you had at camp. It's that you will be saved. It's a guarantee. He's going to do it. He's going to rescue you. He's going to save you. The Bible gives us all kinds of metaphors of what that means. It says that we are justified in the courtroom of God. Like the judge of the universe looks at you and goes, not guilty. Not guilty. Not guilty. And you're like, but I am guilty. He goes, no, no, no. The guilt's been put on Jesus. You're not guilty. You're acquitted. Justified in the courtroom of God's universe. Reconciled like two feuding tribes who come back together and finally become friends again. You are reconciled. You were enemies of God and now you're reconciled to him. The Bible says that Jesus Christ's redemption is the propitiation of God's sin, meaning the wrath of God has been targeted toward Jesus and not you. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're told that we are redeemed from the curse of the law. We're purchased back. Jesus actually paid it all and the check cleared. 
And then finally, the scriptures say we are saved when we are adopted into the family of God, sons and daughters of the Most High God, where God looks at us like he looks at his beloved son. He looks at Brian Howard, and he looks at everyone who would call on his name, and he says, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the invitation for you. At the beginning of this weekend, Julian was up here saying he was sitting right over there when he was in high school. Someone invited him to camp, and that was his moment, his spiritual birthday. Uh, I was just talking to another leader, uh, and she was saying, today is my spiritual birthday. She was remembering back to winter camp years and years and years ago. But for some of you, I want you to know that tonight's that night, and this is the invitation to call on the name of the Lord that you might be saved. Some of you, you've been so far from God and you know it, you've never been part of church, you've never been part of God's family, tonight's your night. Respond to this invitation. And for some of you, you have grown up in church and everyone sitting around you right now assumes you're already a Christian. Tonight, I want to invite you to respond to this invitation. If you do not know Jesus, if you have not called upon the name of the Lord, let me invite you to do that tonight. So here's what we're gonna do. Across this room, I want everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes. Here's why we do this. There will come a day where every single human being who has ever lived will stand in judgment before God. And I want you to know on that day, the person sitting to your left will not be there. The person sitting to your right will not be there. Your mom will not be there. Your pastor will not be there. Your best friend will not be there. You will be there. And this invitation is for you. And no one else, no one else gets to make it. And so tonight when I give this invitation, I want you to respond, not to impress someone around you, not to kind of make someone else feel better, not because you're feeling the pressure. I want it to be a thing that you do before the Lord where you call upon his name. What I'm going to ask you to do in this room is this. I'm going to pray a prayer. And this prayer, it doesn't save you. It's not some incantation. It's just a way of calling on the name of the Lord, crying out to him. And maybe I can put some words around that for you tonight. So I'm going to pray a prayer right now. And if tonight you're saying, that's me, I'm going to call on the name of the Lord. I'm done playing. I'm done pretending. I'm calling on Jesus. My life is his. I receive his forgiveness. Tonight's your night. Would you just pray this in the quietness of your heart? And you just put this in your own words if you want to, but in the midst of your heart, would you just pray, God, I confess that you are Lord. God, I believe that you created me and you created this world. God, I also want to confess that I'm a sinner, that I have turned from you, have I rebelled against you. And God, I yet confess that Jesus is my great Savior, that he died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead for my salvation. So God, I respond tonight by repenting of my sin, running fully into the arms of Jesus. God, I call on your name that you would rescue and save me. Yahweh, save me. Jesus, save me. Rescue me tonight. God, I call on your name that I might be saved. I give everything I know of me to everything I know of you asking that you would save me. Now, with every eye closed and head bowed across this room, here's the question I want to ask. If tonight you prayed that prayer for the first time, I don't mean like every time you come to camp, you pray this prayer over and over. I just mean the first time. Would you just be bold enough to open your eyes and look straight at me? All across this room, there's people looking at me. Just keep looking straight at me. If tonight's your night, if your eyes are still closed, this can be your night. Just look straight at me. Up in the balcony, I see you up there, all across this room. Here's what I want to ask. If you're looking at me right now, I want to ask two questions of you, and you can just nod your head if that's true. And if it's not true, close your eyes, because I don't want to make a hypocrite of anyone in this room. If you're looking at me right now, are you confessing 
that you are a great sinner, but you have a great Savior in Jesus, the crucified and resurrected one? If so, nod your head yes. Awesome. All across this room. If not, you don't have to respond. I don't want to make a hypocrite. And then are you confessing tonight that Jesus is in charge? He's Lord. He is the master of your life. You're going to follow after him and what he says. If so, nod your head yes. All across this room. All up in the balcony. Then here's what the Bible says. Like that verse on screen. If you're looking at me, look on screen right now. It says everyone. That includes you who calls in the name of the Lord. That's you right now. Will be saved. Rescued. Redeemed. Not on some future date when you die, but right now in this very moment. Eternal life is springing up in this room. That's what the scriptures promise us. And if you're looking at me right now, I want you to know that this is a spiritual mile marker in your life that changes you in the direction and trajectory of your entire eternity. And so here's what I want you to know if you're looking at me right now. If today's the day you're putting your faith in Jesus, this is no small day. This is a big day. This is a day we're celebrating, not just in your own heart, but with your church and with your friends and with the people who surround you. So you have done something true and righteous and good, but now I'm going to ask you to do something brave that you might stand and boldly and publicly declare who Jesus is in a moment. I'm going to count to three. And if today's your day, if today's the day you're calling on the name of the Lord, in the midst of these brothers and sisters who love the Lord with you, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet so we can celebrate with you. If today's your day, and you are calling on the name of the Lord. Stand to your feet on three. One, two, three. All across this room. All across this room. The rest of you celebrate with us. Look around here. Stay standing. You know, one of the great risks uh, of standing is that you feel like you're alone, but I need you to know something. Today, you have not just been saved so that you and Jesus are right. You have been saved into a family, a redeemed people called out for the Lord who surround you and are with you and we're for you and we support you and we're with you. I want you to understand that today is not a day where it's just you and God. It is you joining a family, a people who will surround you from now into eternity. So here's how the story ends. Um, and you guys can take a seat for just a moment. The story ends with, it says, and God relented from the calamity he had promised. This is a stunning part of the story. God relents, God saves, God rescues, and he forgives, and he redeems, and he lifts up. That's what he does for Nineveh. It's what he's done in this house tonight. And here's what we know. God saves an entire city, an entire people, and so if tonight's the night and you stood and called upon the name of the Lord, I want you to know it's not just you on your own following Jesus, it's you being part of a people. I want you to lean into your church. I want you to talk to your cabin. I want you to talk to your youth pastor. If it's part of how you roll at your church, I want you to get baptized as a public symbol of your death to sin and your resurrection in Jesus Christ. If tonight wasn't your night and you're already a Christian, you said, I did that years ago, or I know what that's like, I want you to continue to show up and lean in with your church, continue to repent, continue to confess that Jesus is Lord and call on his name, not just the day you're saved, but every day until you go to be with him in glory. And then hear me clearly. For the person in this room who goes, 
That's still not me. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in your Jesus. I don't believe in sin. I don't believe in your Bible. I don't believe in this Yahweh you're talking about. I want you to know that you might be done with God, but my God isn't done with you. He will pursue you. He will find you. He will hunt you down. And I pray the hound of heaven, the mercy of Christ, the glory of God would come after you until your dying breath. Because that's what our God is like. He is a God who rejoices in relenting from calamity, filled with compassion, filled with great love, filled with everlasting mercy and kindness toward his people. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God we worship. It is the kind of God who saves. So let's do this. Would every person in this room, across the room, in the balcony, stand to your feet right now. We're going to pray together and we're going to worship the Jesus Christ who rescues and saves. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight. Thank you for being a God who rescues and saves. For a God who hears our prayers and forgives our sins. Who raises us up from the pit. We declare in this house with Jonah and with the saints throughout all of the ages that salvation comes from Yahweh. Salvation comes from Jesus. Salvation comes from the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of heaven. God, would you hear our prayers? Would you respond to our praises? Would you be in our midst tonight and remind us always that our God saves. And all God's people said...